in the Bible, they talk about positional sanctification and practical sanctification. Positionally, we have been restored completely in Christ Jesus. It is a finished work. There's nothing more that needs to be done. But practically, does everyone here feel that they've been completely restored, that you are holy, blameless, and above reproach in everything? Absolutely not, right? So there is a, not a further work of Christ, but when we leave this life and when we see our Lord face to face, that is when we'll see the completion of the project. Yes, we're a project. Some larger than others. You're looking too far for that need you have inside. Welcome to the Cleansing Word. We invite you to stay with us as Pastor John Pinnell of Calvary Chapel Lake Villa takes us through a verse-by-verse study from God's Word. Each Monday through Friday, we'll be airing messages to encourage you in your faith that you might grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope that you enjoy this broadcast and I'll return at the close of this teaching to give you more information about our church and how you can obtain a copy of this message. Now here's Pastor John with today's message from God's Word. Colossians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 29 today as we close out this chapter and looking at the hope of glory. And when I kind of search through the text. I, I don't go too far beyond the text to try to pull titles out. And I pulled the title from verse 27 that says, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, each week I've been wanting to bring you just a little historical note on Colossians as we go through this study. And I just pulled this quote from Barnes. Bible commentator who was speaking about the background of the writing of this text. He said, this epistle is believed to have been written at Rome when Paul was a prisoner there, about the same time that the epistle of Ephesians and Philemon were written, and that they were sent out by the same persons. And the epistle itself, we know Tychicus and also uh, Onesimus were named in Colossians as the ones delivering this letter, and we'll read about them in chapter 4. But he says that this epistle and the one to Philemon were written about the same time. It is further apparent by the fact that Epaphras is mentioned in both as with the apostle and joining in the salutation, and so we had already mentioned that as well. What I wanted us to see as far as the historical side of this is the date of, according to Barnes and Many would agree with this, that Paul had written this while he was in prison at Rome. And so he goes on to say, the epistles to Colossians bears eternal marks of having been written at Rome when a prisoner, when he says in verse 124, now I rejoice in my sufferings for you in 
chapter 4, verse 18, remember my bonds. If this be so, then it's not difficult to fix the date of this epistle with a degree of accuracy written around AD 62. So I'm going to go ahead and read through the context and we'll open in prayer and get into God's word. Verse 21, it says, For you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from the ages, from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of his glory, of this mystery among you, the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. And Father, we just pray that you would anoint your word. We know it's anointed, Lord. We know your word is true. And so, Father, we're asking that you would anoint your word to us today, that our spirits would be meshed with your spirit today, Lord, that you'd give us understanding in your scripture, that you would teach us the truths that have been laid before us, Lord, that we would come into a deeper relationship with you this day, Lord. It is our prayer we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we're going to look at, first of all, the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel. He says in verse 21, in the beginning of that verse, we were once alienated and enemies. And the Greek word for alienated, alien, estranged, being excluded from alienated from having a relationship with God. That's what he's talking about. This is where we used to be. Before we knew Christ as our Savior, we were alienated. We were also enemies. It primarily means, it's a Greek word that means to hate, to be hateful or to be hostile against something. We were adversaries, enemies of God. Now, sometimes people, and I was thinking about this today when the teachers were here and I was doing a brief little mini message for them. Sometimes people are alienated and enemies and they don't even realize it. And there are many people in the churches today that they're alienated and enemies of God, meaning that they have no relationship with Jesus Christ himself. But every Sunday they sit in the church pew and they're in fellowship. They read God's word. They have fellowship with other believers and people who are there and they may even be teaching Sunday school, being active in the church, but they have no personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And if that is true, then they are alienated. They're enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ because they had never come to that place of repentance. 
to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And then there's other times that we're aliens and enemies, and we know that we are. When I went to Sudan, there was five of us who had come from the United States. We met one of the brothers from Michigan who had been serving there. So we flew up together to Nimli on a little bush plane, and we were the only white guys in all of Nimli, the only ones that we saw. And we were aliens, and everybody knew it. The Sudanese are very dark. We'd drive down the road in, in the back of a pickup truck usually, and the African children would be shouting, Kawajis, Kawajis, white people, white people, because we were aliens. They knew it, and we knew it. You know, We stood out when we were there in Nimli. And, and sometimes we're alienated, we're enemies of the work of God because only if we're without faith in God at this point, but we can be in a place to where we're fellowshipping in churches and we don't even know that we're aliens and enemies. And according to the word of God in Ephesians 2.12, we've been alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. At that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope or without God in the world. You have no hope. You're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. There was no relation there with God or even the people of God. Also, we were alienated from the life of God in Ephesians 4, 17 and 19. It says, this I say, therefore, and I testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness and greediness. We were in that place. We, at one time, apart from Christ, we were alienated from the life of God because our, our understanding was darkened. We had the blindness of heart that caused us to do the things of the world. I was interested as we were reading through the psalm this morning, one of the latter verses in Psalm 38 Verse 20, it's what we're seeing happening in our world today where it says, those who render evil for good, they are my adversaries because I follow what is good. And we live in a world where there are many who are rendering evil for good and they're the adversary against Christ and his church because they have been alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, alienated from life with God. And then they're also enemies of God Ephesians 2, 14 through 16 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in the flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Now, Paul here is speaking about the division that was between Jew and Gentile, but also a division that's between man and God, that Christ and his work on the cross, he took those who were once enemies and he made peace, for he himself is our peace. And so by default, our sin nature has caused us to be hostile toward the things of God, toward his design for our lives. 
We're also now reconciled. As believers, we're reconciled, holy and blameless. As we pick up in verse 21 into verse 22, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach. He has reconciled. It's a Greek word that means to bring back or to reconcile completely. And Paul had a bit to say about the reconciliation of Christ as we closed out last week, picking up in verse 18 through 20. He says, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. The reconciliation, it's God's purpose through Jesus Christ. It's the work of Christ that he does the work of reconciliation to bring us back into fellowship with God. By Jesus, we are reconciled back into fellowship with God. It was his death that paid the price of our sins. Therefore, we have been reconciled, restored completely, that we might be presented in his sight as holy, blameless, and above reproach. Here's the thing. In the Bible, they talk about positional sanctification and practical sanctification. Positionally, we have been restored completely in Christ Jesus. It is a finished work. There's nothing more that needs to be done. But practically, does everyone here feel that they've been completely restored, that you are holy, blameless, and above reproach in everything? Absolutely not, right? So there is a, not a further work of Christ, but when we leave this life and we see our Lord face to face, that is when we'll see the completion of the project. Yes, we're a project. Some larger than others. I was a tradesman for 20 years. I worked on a lot of projects. Sometimes in the middle of a project, you wonder if it'll ever be completed and you have troubles and you even have nightmares about the project itself. But every project I ever worked on that I was able to be around when it was completed, and sometimes you show up and work a few days on a job and get sent somewhere else. But as a foreman, that rarely ever happened to me. I, from the start to the finish, there would be a day you could stand back and see the completed work. What the architect had envisioned, I was then able to look at and and myself as the brick mason foreman, along with my guys and all the other trades, we stand back and we see the completed work. And one day we'll be able to stand and see the completed work that Christ has designed for each of us, that we would be holy. It's hagios in the Greek. It means an awful thing, not like an ick. That's awful. But to be filled with awe concerning something uh, worthy of veneration as believers is, means that we've been set apart unto God. He has set us apart as holy. To be blameless, it means to be without blame, but it's applied to Christ specifically. This Greek word is applied to Christ specifically in Hebrews 9.14. It means to be without spot to God. In 
Hebrews 9.14, it says of Jesus Christ that he is the lamb that was without spot toward God. That references back to the Old Testament sacrifices as the lambs, the oxen, the goat, whatever was to be offered, they had to be normally an animal of a year or less, so a yearling, but not all the time. But they had to be without spot or blemish. And that's the reference here of this blameless. There's no spot. And so in Ephesians 1.4, Paul refers to the believer with the same word, saying that we stand without blame before him, without blame before God. There's no accuser. And that kind of goes into the next word itself, that we have been blameless and above reproach. There's nothing that anyone can accuse anything of. And again, this morning, as we were running through this with the teachers, it made me think of Job and Satan there at the throne of God, who's called the accuser of the brethren. That when we read the story of Job in the opening chapter of Job, we find that Satan is there and he is accusing. What about Job? And he's bringing accusation of Job against the Lord. And now with Jesus Christ, it just had me thinking of Satan you know, wanting to accuse us and Christ standing there and saying, uh-uh, she's mine. You can't accuse her before my father. My blood covers her. Uh-uh, he's mine. Shut your mouth. Shut up. You have nothing to say because in my sight, they're holy, they're blameless, and they're above reproach. Colossians 1.22, to bring you holy, pure, and without accusation into his presence. It's another uh, a way that uh, another translator translated this same verse to bring you holy, pure, and without accusation into his presence. That's the goal of Christ. We're a work in progress now. We're the project now. But one day he'll bring us and we'll stand and we'll get to see the finished project as well. And we'll be amazed at what Christ has done in our lives. Romans 5.10 says, For if we were once enemies, we were reconciled to God through his death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And although reconciled, the completeness of reconciliation will not be seen until we stand before the Lord and see him face to face. At that day, then we'll understand what it means to be truly holy, blameless, and above reproach. We'll see the finished work, but right now, positionally, this is the position that we stand in and that we place our hope in as well. Ephesians, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will also do it. And so Christ working in us. He'll see that it's done. He'll see that it's complete. In verse 23, we're to continue now in faith because he has reconciled us, because he sees us as holy, blameless, and above reproach. We are to continue now in faith, where it says in verse 23, if indeed you continue in faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now that phrase, which was preached to every creature under heaven, to this day we know that the preaching of the gospel is an ongoing affair. 
Every generation has their calling to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to take the great commission of Jesus Christ. Paul said, I became part of that great commission myself. I became a minister. And that every creature has heard, well, literally, the gospel had went forth in the world that they knew at that time. And it's still going forth to this day. And realize that every day there's someone born upon this earth that is apart from Christ. So every day there's an opportunity as that child grows and becomes an adult or a child to introduce them as they're a child first, of course, and then grow into adulthood. There's the opportunity to introduce them to faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul was part of that movement. We're to be part of that movement as well. The early church, and we've talked about this with Colossians so far, they battled two major things going on in the early church. Within 30 years of the founding of the church, Judaism and Gnosticism were two big rivals. They were within the church saying, Judaism saying that you're saved, but you also need to keep the Mosaic law. So it was Christ plus the Mosaic law. And Gnosticism was saying salvation truly comes about not only through faith in Jesus Christ, but there is this superior knowledge. And to be truly saved, you've got to come into this place of superior knowledge. And Paul really seems to be dealing with the issue of Gnosticism in his text. So he's reminding the believers to continue in their faith, to stay grounded and steadfast in their position. And so to continue in their faith, to be grounded, it means to lay a foundation upon which you can build. And if you're going to build any structure, any building, it needs to begin with the foundation. You build the structure upon the proper foundation. If your foundation is too weak and your structure is too large or too strong for the foundation that is being supposed to support it, you'll have problems. You'll have some kind of leaning tower thing going on. You need a proper foundation. Our proper foundation is Jesus Christ. And so we're to be grounded upon the proper foundation, and it's Christ himself who becomes that foundation. He speaks about the foundation in Luke 6, 47 through 48, where he says, whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation upon the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream beat against that house, it could not shake it or it was founded upon the rock, and Christ is the foundation. So we're to continue in faith upon that foundation which Christ himself has built, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Then we're to be steadfast. It's a Greek word that can mean to be seated. Nobody's going to move you. It just caused me to think of a child who is in rebellion against a parent or both parents and sits down. Usually smaller kids do this. Sometimes Bigger kids do it too. When they're bigger, it doesn't look as good. But smaller kids are, you know, they'll sit down, they'll not move, you know. I'm not going to do what you want me to do. I'm just going to sit down and, and rebel against you. And that's the attitude, not the rebellion, but the attitude we're to have in regards to our faith towards Jesus Christ. We're to be seated, immovable, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of our Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And so we're to plant ourselves firmly upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. 
that we might become immovable physically, emotionally, spiritually in a world that is being tossed to and fro. This being seated and being planted to be steadfast in our faith, we are living in a day and age when people are waffling on what used to be foundational truths of God's word because of the changing culture of the world and the society that we live in today. But we're not to adjust God's word to the culture that is around us. We're to present God's word to a culture that needs to hear the truth of his word. And in that regard, we have to be seated immovable. And sometimes people will try to move, they'll push. And sometimes our battles may be great because of that. And we've also been called into that role of minister as well. We're to share the gospel, that which we have also received. And Father, I pray that if you're challenging our hearts today, Lord, then challenge us. May we surrender to your will for our lives this day. May we be those who are steadfast and immovable, as Paul himself declared. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Calvary Chapel is a fellowship of believers in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our greatest desire is to know Christ and to be conformed into His image by the power of His Holy Spirit. If you would like more information about Calvary Chapel, or if you would like a copy of today's message, please contact us at 847-265-0646. That's 847-265-0646. Thank you so much for joining us today. And may the Lord richly bless you as you worship him today.